electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Exuberance or exactly what the market should be doing and how it should be trading. We'll debate the state of stocks with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Joe Terranova, Shannon Sakosha, Jim Labenthal here post-9. Check the markets. We do have the NAS is green today. There's the, uh, the S&P. Well, the S&P is barely gone green. Dow's uh, red. Watching yields today, the 10 years at 415. So they've been backing up a bit. Maybe that's putting a little bit of pressure on, on, on stocks today. Shannon, I want to explore this question, whether there's too much exuberance uh, in this market, as some are suggesting, some notable market people raising that issue. What do you think? Well, I think the exuberance, you know, that the, the signification of the question is really around the fact that we're at an all-time, a new all-time high for the S&P 500. But if you go back to January of 2022, Scott, a lot of stocks in the S&P 500 haven't participated in this. And so does the exuberance really around the fact that the technology part of this trade is going to continue to uh, build additional momentum? To me, that's not necessarily a positive because what you're seeing right now is you're surely seeing a barbell impact. You're seeing investors go back to the things that they feel most safe in, that they're looking at these companies able to continue to grow their earnings when a sizable part of the market that hasn't participated in last year's rally, where we should be allocating capital, maybe not as firmly in the camp of being able to grow their earnings. And so I think it's almost a little bit of a risk off trade in my in my mind in terms of what do you expect for the broadening out of the market? And are you going to get that? Well, this, to me, just seems like a continuation. Last couple of days, I mean, the, well, the Russell was up almost 2% yesterday. So your, your point's well taken for the majority of the beginning of this, this year. We're, it's still young. Last couple of days, though, not, you know, today notwithstanding, last couple of days, um, you have had a return to, to some of this broadening. But on the idea that the market is just, people are just too exuberant right now. We, we mentioned what Ed Yardeni had written to his clients in, in the last 24 to 48 hours or so, talking about this exuberant, melt-up phase. I want you to listen to what Cheryl Young told me yesterday, Joe, on Closing Bell. Okay. She of the Rockefeller Global Family Office. She's a private advisor. She also happens to be in the Barron's Hall of Fame for, in terms of wealth advisors. Here's what she told me. And she's positive, but listen. I think the market is priced to perfection right now. I mean, we just hit all-time highs today, which is exciting to be on the show today. Um, I'm a little worried. And the last few shows I've been on, Scott, I was very bullish. I was doubling down on tech the last time we spoke in October. And valuations are a little bit stretched, so things are priced to perfection. Pretty, um, you know, interesting view from uh, a well-known wealth manager and highly yes. regarded one. What do you think of what Cheryl told me? Uh, I do know Cheryl well. Uh, I've worked with Cheryl in the past. Cheryl has been incredibly accurate in her assessment of the market over she, the last she, several is years. Is she right now? So 
what she, what she spoke about yesterday with you is utilizing the options market to hedge out some of the risks that she's seeing. Well, in the she's been writing covered calls against her right. positions to do that. But on her broad view, stick with me on her broad view that the market is priced to perfection. Do you agree or not? The, the difficult the difficult answer to that, Scott, is when you say the market. I'm having difficulty understanding what specific market we're talking about, okay? If we're talking about the S&P. We're talking about the stock market. Well, no, 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 because right now you have complete bifurcation. Let me finish. You You have complete bifurcation in terms of performance. So you have to be careful when you say we're talking about the market. We began the show talking about this broadening out. Yesterday, the Russell was up 2%. Where's the Russell today? There should have been follow through today. There was not. So no, I don't think there is exuberance. I think there's exuberance as it relates to equities. I think there's exuberance surrounding monetary policy. Got me wound up. Surrounding monetary policy, okay? Because the, the exuberance surrounding monetary policy is expecting disinversion of the yield curve. It is expecting lower yields, and you're not getting that right now. So Cheryl is correct that the market is priced for perfection if you believe that you're going to get disinversion, if you believe that yields are going to move lower. Scott, if you don't get that, then the market doesn't belong here where it is. It's going lower. Okay, so Howard Marks, right? Oak Trees Howard Marks, uh, a legend in terms of looking at the markets and trying to decide where we're going from here. Talked about this as well within the last hour or so. Um, are things really as good as the market would have you believe by virtue of the fact that we are at new highs? Shannon, for those who you can't see, uh, is shaking her head. No, they're not. <laughs> but listen to what Howard Marks said, because we'll kick that around, too, because it's, you know, it's Cheryl Young. Here's Harold Marks. The belief is. Inflation will abate. That means the Fed won't have to raise rates anymore. It'll be able to turn dovish and start cutting rates. That means we won't have a recession. And that means, you know, that the, uh, that the economy will uh, do well and the market will do well. And the only trouble is, if you think about it, that's a compounding of positives. Right. Are there there too many positives being built into the market story? I think that's what we're trying to get at. Not suggestive that the answer is yes but simply debating whether the market is ahead of itself or, as I said at the beginning, exuberance or exactly where it should be. Yeah, I I don't think we are in an exuberant phase. So let me make that clear. I do not think we're in an exuberant phase. Um, I heard what Mr. Marks, mad respect for him, of course, just said. Um, I think many of us who really dissect things like inflation will strongly feel that inflation is lagging in terms of what it's showing. We can look at shelter. We can look at PPI. We can look at disinflation, deflation coming from China. I don't don't want to go too far down that road. But in terms of the compounding of positives, there are reasons for the positives to be compounded. Now, I also don't want to get ahead of my skis and be table pounding here. Sure, I see the multiples on something like Microsoft at 35 times this year's Apple at something like 28 times this year's but you know with where we started this on Ed Yardeni because I read his note and he asked the question are we facing a moment of irrational exuberance tossing back to Greenspan in 96 and he answered it actually in his missive on Sunday night by saying we've probably got more room to go those multiples I just said 35 28 29 they pale in comparison to what we saw at the top in the, at the you know 1999 2000 top where Cisco the famous bridge too far cover of Barron's was trading at 100 times earnings. Now, maybe 35 
Times earnings is too expensive for Microsoft. Maybe. But you can also make the case that that company is growing its earnings with a very fundamental reason, namely AI and a growing economy which supports the other parts of their traditional business. And so it's not all that expensive. But what I don't think we can say here, just to be clear, is that there's some trap door that's going to open up underneath the market the way it did in 2004 technology stocks or the way it did in 2022. You, you let's be clear, too. Um, as bullish as you obviously are sure. and have been, you're only looking for a 5% gain on the S&P for this year. Oh, I year. love this. Love this. Can I just jump in? Yeah. Because, because yes, yes, I am. You, I am. Yes, I actually want you to. <laughs> yes, I'm looking straight at you, directing because, this comment to you, <laughs> inviting you to jump here in. here we go. Because I'm respectful of those multiples I just said. I'm dancing with the idea that 35, Scott, may be too expensive for Microsoft. So does it go to 40? I don't think so. But where do I see the opportunity? It's in small caps where I see 16% gain from here to year end. I've been, I've been prolific in saying that. And it's outside of technology where I've been prolific on this show saying, folks, take a look at those financials, which actually have had a nice bid to them. Take a look at industrials, materials. There's reason for earnings to grow here, probably in the second half, not the first half, but reasons for the earnings to grow. And with the multiples they're showing, single digits, 10, 12 times, you could see meaningful share price appreciation there. So yes, 5,100 is the year on target on the S&P 500, but it's the underlying components that you've got to make choices in. Well, Bank of America, Shan, their flow show, biggest inflows into stocks since mid-December. Jimmy's financials, biggest outflow, largest net sales since June, since the early part of the summer. Okay, so money's flowing in to stocks. Money's flowing out of, of financials. What did you want to say? Short term, the financials question is really around net interest income. And, and I think this, the story is, is that we are, we're looking at second half of the year for improvement there. That's really why you're seeing the financials outflow. However, Jim makes a great point in that gross margin improvement for small caps, for industrials, for healthcare, for all of these all of these companies that didn't participate last year, there's a there's a margin recapture story in those in those companies this year. So while we expect there to be slowing top line nominal growth, you're looking at these other parts of the market that haven't had the opportunity to grow their gross margin. They these valuations on the technology companies, they're vulnerable, not because, as Jim said, they're not going to grow their earnings this year, but there's better opportunities for gross margin improvement in some of these other places. And that's why I think the broadening of the market will indicate that there is success and progress in this endeavor. So we're talking about expected future revenue growth when real revenue growth is in front of you today with the mega caps. That's where you get your 20% revenue growth. And that's where capital is being allocated towards. It's very clear. And look, let, let's, let's make this distinction once again. The predominant factor in the market is a non-discretionary algorithmic buying. And that type of buying is right now buying quality, and it's buying the growth that's here today and is present today. Not that we hope at some point in the next six months, we see revenue growth begin to accelerate from the areas of the market that have lagged. Because for that to occur, you need to have 
monetary policy align itself with market expectations. That could happen and at so any far, point in but time. But it's not year to date, Jimmy. No, but Joe, I'm going to push back on you. You I can hear push you, back I all hear you want. Listen, I live I, in a world where I you res- trade what you have in front of you. I respect what you're saying. I, res- I really do. You know I do about the algos, and I learn from you when you say this. And what I'm saying to you, and I've said it the third time in a row I'm saying to you, look, I understand the yield curve has not yet disinverted. You cannot look at the direction of the yield curve and think it's not going to disinvert some time soon. I think it's I'm, going to disinvert. And when that happens, what are the you don't think the algos are programmed that when that happens it's by the cyclicals? You, I, or no one else knows when that is going to happen. When it does happen, I will be the first one along with you. Okay, we have a timeline difference. Quant- we just have a timeline difference. I will be the first one to be allocating in that direction. But I don't want to sit here waiting and investing around an expectation, a hope into the future that may not occur like it didn't occur in 2023. And I'm not saying, let's be clear about this, I'm not saying go sell your Microsoft, Apple, and NVIDIA. I own those stocks, folks. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. And Shannon, I think this is what you were saying too, is what we're saying is you don't have to own these at these egregious market weights if, and this is our timeline discussion, you're going to wait till it happens. I'm saying it's imminent. I believe it's imminent. So why not position the proverbial where the puck is going and be underweight the technical Tech, uh, technology stocks and overweight. But I mean, you 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 bought um, Nvidia, for example, at a time where the multiple was already elevated. No, actually, it had come down. So the, I mean, it's uh, okay. But it, it come may down have come down. Honestly, it had like, come, come down. down honestly, Jimmy. No, 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 no. It had come don't, down. Don't act like it <laughs> was cut in 50 50 percent. It, it was well, literally on, cut in fifty percent. Uh, Scott, it was literally what was it, 60 fit- times. No, it was 60 times at the beginning of last year. Where did I start buying it after that second beginning quarter? Beginning of last year? Yeah, we're talking it was 60 about the times. beginning of last year. Oh my God! Wait, Scott. Now you're so you're so eager to have fun with me that you're missing the point. At the beginning of 2023, the Ford multiple on video was 60. Was 60? Okay, it was. It grew into a much lower multiple. And when I bought it, it was around 29 times forward. That was in the middle of the late summer. Is 29 to 30, 30 whatever times for NVIDIA, is that rich? I don't think so. That's a legitimate question. I mean, we're not going to fight. I, I, that's a legitimate is question. Your 30, I don't think so. Is your 30, I don't know what it is today, 32, Microsoft, whatever the forward PE on that is, is that rich? Feels a little rich to me. Feels a little rich to me. I'm not going to sell it because to Joe's, look, you never want to make these all-in bets. I'm not going to sell all my technology stocks. You could say it. I thought it was implicit, but I'll say it. To Joe's point, like, where's the leadership right now? It's Microsoft. It's NVIDIA. I don't want to sell these right now, but I am underweight. So if, if this is where the leadership is, and you're probably... I'm guessing a little surprised by that because you probably thought it would be broader. Yep. Isn't there a message that this market is sending to you like Joe is trying to It could be, Scott. It it won't be the first time I'm wrong. I mean, that's true. But I I do my analysis and I come to the conclusion that where you want to be right now is underweight, not out of, underweight technology, overweight the cyclicals. I think Joe would agree with me, but he's waiting for a proper timeline. That's I think fine. We're different. Joe on came this. into this year thinking that, you know, the trajectory of rates was going to be lower, that yes. you were going to have this broadening. And I think he's been surprised by the matter of fact that you've had money going back 
into the mega Me caps too. to the degree it has. Me too. Yeah. Incredibly surprised by what we've witnessed so far year to date. You should have had extreme follow through, in particular in the early stages of January when new capital always searches for a home. And you just didn't find that. And you're seeing a, a backup in yields that I'm growing somewhat uncomfortable with. And that needs to reverse for that capital to begin to flow in the areas of the market that lagged in 2023. Is there enough new capital looking for a home right now, though? Money market on the retail side still 65% higher than it was two years ago. Like we still, there is enough capital seeking a home at this juncture to be able to create that broadening out, or do we just have to wait and see until there's either the monetary stimulus that you talked about, or until we get more transparency on fiscal stimulus, which is not going to abate. That could be a driver this year. I don't. I think we could. We have to look at them in parallel. Hey, how about this? That some of the you know there are those who have been more cautious, if not, you know, downright bearish U.S. equities for many, many months and have refused to make the pivot. Some have, some haven't, like Marco Kalanovic, J.P. JP Morgan. Uh, he is not making the pivot. His commentary today, uh, I could have been reading this to you, frankly, six months ago. It would have read the same. He says, remain underweight equities. U.S. companies are reporting lackluster uh, Q4 23 results and forward guidance so far, and we look for below average EPS beats this quarter despite a low hurdle. We keep a defensive allocation in our model portfolio with an underweight in equities and credit versus overweight in cash and, and commodities. Overweight commodities. First of all, commodities right now as an asset class is telling you that there's significant economic weakness in other areas of the world, and it's now being exported into Europe, and ultimately it's going to be exported into the U.S. So don't get excited about what we heard this morning uh, with, with Chinese policy coming in and stepping in to support equities, and therefore you're seeing copper rally, you're seeing Alcoa rally, you're seeing some steel names rally. Yeah, don't get not, excited He's not, he's not making a one-day call. Okay, but, but we're talking, we're, uh, it's very clear, commodities have not been the place to be in 2023. And commodities so far in 2024 are not coming out as the place that ultimately they want to be. I think in terms of utilizing equities as your North Star on where the overall market's going to go, let's get past the mega cap earnings because they have been such a significant driver of where the overall S&P 500 directionally is going to go. It was very clear in July, that was the case, and it was very clear in October, that was the case. So let's hear from mega cap equities first, because if mega cap equities do not deliver, I will be the first person well, on this network to say, look, we've got a little bit of a challenge be, in front of us. Let's be clear. If mega cap earnings are a disappointment, the entirety of the market conversation is going to have a different tone to but it. But there's the importance of, of mega course. caps. Oh, yeah. By the way, City today, NASDAQ 100 futures positioning near the highest in three years uh, as investors continue to favor growth stocks into earnings season. By the way, that speaks to Shannon's point, where the new capital, where's the new capital coming from if it's already in the NASDAQ 100 futures, right? Um, Look, I, I think I'm thinking about what Marco is saying here, and I think there's still a, a grudging lack of acceptance that inflation is coming down. I really think it's that simple. Um, you know, I'm looking at what the Cleveland is, Fed is forecasting for PCE uh, at the end of the week, and you're, you're looking at a two-handle on the headline, a two-handle. 
All right. The Fed, the tone has changed. I've been saying this for some time. We're no longer talking about how high is the Fed going to raise rates. We're talking about when and by how much is the Fed going to cut rates. That is clearly buoyant to the economy. For those people who are saying that, what about the lagged effects of the economy? You may well be right, but there's an ameliorative effect about to come from rate cuts. I don't care if it's March or May. It's coming. Um, you know, at the same time, you've got jobless claims way low. You've got a strong economy. I think it's time. Look, the branch on which the bears are sitting has become thinner by the day. They, they can hang their hopes on the fact that there's fewer of them sitting on it, but that branch is getting thinner. Uh, and, I, and I don't think we can, I don't think the market is exuberant in terms of pricing. I don't think that's something else to look at as a reason why sure. we're going to come down. I, I think the other branch that you're starting to see actually that they might jump to, Jimmy, is the if the economy remains as strong as everything looks, then we're going to have a second wave of inflation. And the disinflation is going to, to, be, to hit its floor and that we might see that second wave of inflation. Could happen. It could, with, of course, with it everything could happen. that's happening in the Red Sea, of course, Unless, the geopolitical of course it tensions. I mean, assuming that you know a continued, robust level of demand <clears throat> is what's going to fuel that. When you could make the argument, and I think the Fed chair himself tried to make the argument to begin with, that it wasn't, in fact demand from a strong economy that fueled the inflation. It was pandemic related. It was actually transitory, um, Scott. <laughs> uh, supply chain issues. Now, you can make a credible argument for certain that yeah. the piling on of stimulus didn't exactly help, yeah. nor did waiting so long to begin the regime of, of raising rates. That Those had compounding effects probably on how high inflation got. But I'm not necessarily sure that if the economy remains strong, that means inflation is going to rear its ugly head yet again. And that's a, a, a big concern. And clearly, the Fed doesn't seem to be that concerned about that either. Just to be point. clear, that is not our view at MB Private Wealth. All I'm saying is that, Jimmy, to his point, you, you, it, once that branch gets thinner and thinner, there'll be another branch that, that I think people So here's something interesting to. with that. Let's just say that the inflation comes from stimulus from the government, which we're talking about tax cuts again. Let's just say this happens, right? And you get a second wave of inflation like this year. That's actually in the early stages likely to be stimulated for the stock market. I mean, the Fed's not going to immediately, we, how many times does the Fed lag in its, in its course correction? The Fed's not going to immediately tilt back to rate hikes. Let me ask and you this. they're talking about stopping or at least tapering quantitative tightening. So there's a long way to go for that rudder to shift. So as we started to get, you know, street targets for 24 towards the latter stages of 2023, before the market really went kind of crazy, and had this massive run in, into the end of the year, 5,100 seemed like a little adventurous. Like, wow, that's getting kind of lofty. But now, City goes year end to 51. Jimmy, you're at 51. Now, there are some who are like, I think Brian Belsky is a little bit higher than that, but I don't know. Now, 51, if you're already where you are at 48 and a half on the, on the S&P, doesn't seem all, all that robust. No, the momentum all. the momentum is clearly in place. You need some form of a shock. There has to be a shock. Now, you had a potential shock already, and you make such an excellent point on inflation and the fact that a strong economy doesn't necessarily mean that inflation rebounds. We already had the test. We had the test in October with the price of oil. Oil should not be at $75 based on the geopolitical concerns that we have in the Middle East. So we've already survived that test. 5,100, the momentum is in place. And really what you have to be able to present the evidence to me for, to believe that we don't get there, is that the momentum gets defeated. And I feel as though 
we have this real internal debate within the market between this, I keep citing this, non-discretionary algorithmic buying that loves the market right now, mm -hmm. and then the discretionary buying, the human element that says, you know what, the market's going to broaden out, I want to be defensive, and sees the market with a degree of skepticism. There's a real battle that's unfolding there, and I think the resolution of that is ultimately going to tell you exactly where this market you're, goes. You're going to get a good test um, in overtime, less than four hours or so from right now, because Netflix is going to report its earnings, the first fang to do so. First real growth test, I think. Julia Borson's following this on some big news today regarding Netflix, the WWE, and what its future forays into live sports might look like, Julia. Well, Scott, first, I just have to say Netflix shares are up 37% since its last earnings report, with the company now expected to grow its revenue 11% into annually 9 million subscriber additions. This all comes as Netflix just this morning announced it will stream WWE's Raw starting next year. Now, this program, which currently airs on USA Network and produces three hours of live programming per week, this is a big deal for Netflix. It's a 10-year deal valued at more than $5 billion, and it will enable Netflix to make WWE documentaries or series like it has with Formula One and golf. It also makes Netflix the home for all WWE shows and specials internationally. So this is Netflix's biggest move into live content yet. So far, it's just done these one-off sporting events, but this really does mark a huge shift for the streamer into this long-term streaming commitment. Do you, do you, Julie, as well as you know this company and this business, think that this is in fact yet the first foot in what's going to be uh, a whole body moving into that door? There's some speculation that the NBA media rights deal may have a Netflix play to it as well. Yes. I mean, look, these NBA rights are being hotly contested. We know everyone's in talks about them. I think that it may, might make more sense for Netflix maybe to pursue the UFC rights. Those are coming up at the end of 2025 because it's all part of that, that same universe as WWE to focus in there. But I think we'll see them also try to create more events, try to figure out how much sporting buzz they can get, live viewing they can get without, without actually spending on something like NBA rights. And of course, this is still relatively new for them. They're building their streaming capabilities and they have, um, you know, some time now to get up and running to have these hours of live events every week. Um, but I think they're going to be checking out everything and the NBA deal is not done yet. Yeah, we'll see you um, a little bit later on with those earnings. Julia Borston following Netflix. Quick comment from you before we take a quick break. Well, I don't own Netflix, so you know I own competitors, Disney and Paramount. Uh, very difficult stocks, to say the least. But what I am looking for for Netflix is what's the overall health of the industry. You want to see subscriber additions. Now, there's uh, there's projections for good additions at Paramount, and I don't want to see that undercut by a bad number from Netflix. All right, coming up, we're going to do our chart of the day. United today, flying high on its earnings. Joe is in that. We'll get his take. We'll get the trades on Exxon, DR Horton, and more. And by the way, the Joe T told us at a 52-week high today. We're back in two minutes. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, 
and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. We're back. Our chart of the day today is United Airlines on the back of earnings. Take a look. Stocks up better than 7%. EPS and revenues beat. Joe, you, you own this. What are you thinking about on the, on the back of these earnings here? And the CEO, you know, Scott Kirby talking about you know, deliver, future deliveries of the Max 10 and casting some real doubt on whether that's ever going to happen. He, he, he did, and I, th- I think he did an excellent job. But I, but I also think, to a certain extent, United Airlines is benefiting from Delta lowering the expectations overall uh, on the airlines. Um, I, I still think, you know, look, the technical momentum, as I've cited, for the airlines is broken from my uh, perspective. I also think you have to have concerns about the rising labor costs and the potential that demand internationally begins to weaken as we're seeing Asia economically see some weakness and that's spreading into Europe. So I'm obviously not particularly excited. I'd like to see follow through in UAL and Delta off of UAL's earnings today. Um, I'm not so sure you're going to get that. I think UAL was up 10 percent. This morning before the open, it's up about seven and a half. The sector's following. Well, I'd like to see it in the coming days follow because, you know, clearly, if you're looking at these charts, they don't look so good. I'm looking at uh, Delta as we speak. Uh, Delta's up nicely today. Uh, Jimmy, what do you say? Well, you own Delta. I own Delta, ridiculously cheap. It got knocked down a couple of weeks ago when they reported earnings, but they actually lowered guidance to where the analyst community already was. I don't think that's why it got knocked down. I honestly think it got knocked down. This was a Friday on the worries about the Houthi rebels and that and the Middle East expanding. You know, we've now gone a couple of weeks since that. And I think the world is coming to grips with, while as ugly the Middle East is, is, it's at its usual state. And it's not likely to propel the oil and jet fuel market higher. And it's not likely to curtail demand, which United today is, is showing us is quite great. So at these prices, and it's not just earnings, it's, it's prices relative to free cash flow. You know, uh, Delta's at just a little bit under 15% free cash flow yield for this day. That's that, uh, for this year. That's really cheap for these airlines. I think that's where you want to be. I mean, I'm just thinking about as, as you know, we've had debates, numerous debates on this program over airline stocks, whether yeah. they're good investments or not. Um, labor costs, maintenance costs, fuel costs, all this other stuff, as good as it gets environment for in, ter- in terms of customer demand? I'm terribly frustrated, Scott. I mean, I am, because this was supposed to be a trade, and it's getting more than long in the tooth. But as I listened to what you just said, I actually took comfort. Because you know what we're not talking about? You know what got resolved last year is labor. You know, that's already priced in. We already got the labor hikes from everybody. Uh, the demand is hanging in there. The price is cheap. Fuel oil is not, you know, jet fuel is not a problem right now. Doesn't look like it will be. Um, 
I think this trade is supposed to start working right now. But to Joe's point, if it doesn't, you get a little scared. Yeah, if I could real quick, I just think when you when you think about the airlines and you assign the word investment to it, you have to look back really five years, 10 years and see, has it been a good investment? And from a price perspective, I don't know if you could make that assertion for these airlines. I know. You, you can say it isn't. It, it isn't, right? So I mean, maybe, can we get a five? Can we, guys, if it, we can it, pull it up quickly, can I we think, get a five-year on, on uh, a Delta or a United or both? Well, I th- it's, that's, that's a pretty ugly picture there. It kind of tells you what you Pretty ugly know. picture. I think if you pull it back 10 years, it's, it's going to be the same type of scenario. So I think, I think these airlines, uh, Stephen Weiss has done a good job talking about this. They're trades. They're trades. Momentum goes in, momentum goes out, momentum's gone out. All right, I am going to say this, though. There have been structural changes. You don't see them operating at low capacity, and the balance sheets, and this doesn't get enough attention, the balance sheets on these airlines have been massively cleaned up and continue to do so. Uh, Jimmy, yeah, I but, no, you, but, but how cares? does that help me if I'm long the stock? Because we just showed the five-year. Take a look at the five-year of I, United, because, I, 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 I mean, that's that's pretty I, telling. I, I know. I know, Scott. I agree, and I'm telling that's you That's more compelling than the balance sheet argument, I'm saying. But I, if... I gotcha, okay? I agree that the chart looks terrible, folks. Don't even I pull up a 10-year, by the way. No, I, I got it, but here's what my point is. Traditionally, these stocks have sold at low multiples because they're heavily indebted, and you worry about what happens when they go into a recession. We're not even worrying about a recession right now, and these balance sheets are remarkably Are we clean. talking about the automakers or the airlines? <laughs> I guess it's that kind. I guess it's that kind of day, huh? No, I'm being serious. Same argument. Let's Maybe get the streaming? headlines with Courtney Reagan. <laughs> Court, you can go ahead. You can save him. It's all good. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate that. Jury selection begins today in Michigan for the trial of Jennifer Crumley. She's charged with being complicit in a mass shooting that her son committed. Jennifer Crumley is on trial for manslaughter for gifting the gun to her then 15-year-old son who used it to murder four of his fellow students at Oxford High School in 2021. A federal appeals court has upheld Martin Shkreli's lifetime ban from the pharmaceutical industry. The three-judge panel in New York said today that the lower courts were right to impose the ban due to Shkreli's antitrust violations. Shkreli earned the nickname PharmaBro while CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals when he raised the price of a drug used by AIDS patients from $17 to $750. Atomic scientists announced today that they will keep the doomsday clock at 90 seconds to midnight, the same as last year. The bulletin of the atomic scientists said Russia's action nuclear weapons in its invasion of Ukraine, a nuclear armed Israel at war with Hamas and worsening climate change were factors in that decision. Scott, back over to you. All right, Court, appreciate that. Courtney Reagan up next, the state of the semis. Texas Instruments on deck with its own earnings. Christina Partzinevelos is standing by with the setup for us. Find out how the committee is playing the chips they've been ripping. We'll trade it and we'll do it next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Watching shares of Texas Instruments today, the company reporting its own results in overtime, getting a little bit of a bump into that. Christina Partzinevelos joins us now with the setup. It's been, as we talked 
on multiple occasions with you, uh, a tale of two segments, really, industrial, auto-related chips versus AI, right? Exactly, and I put that into what I've written here. But with Texas Instruments, let's start with just the management guiding revenue down for five straight quarters with year-over-year declines. It's no wonder that this stock in particular has become the most popular chip short in the second half of 2023. Perhaps times are changing now, although many are betting that the bottom is near, is in, close. There's still some debate, but nonetheless that it's super close for this analog name. Few agree, though, that it's a buy-in, and that's why you're seeing the stock underperform the SMH ETF as well as the SOX ETF year to date. There are several reasons for this buying hesitation for Texas Instruments. You've got continued weakness in industrial and in automotive end markets, Mobileye and Microchip warning of an EV slowdown, that adding to it. Then you've got concerns of double ordering specifically within auto. There's possible cuts for Texas Instruments fab utilization rates because of that weak demand and then increased capex. We're waiting to hear commentary on that. Both of those elements would hit gross margins. Gross margins, a major concern. And then last pricing pressure in personal electronics from competition in China. So we'll be looking for any signs on uh, what's going on there. And that's why, to your point, Scott, all chips aren't created equal. And there's a discrepancy between the compute chip names like AMD, NVIDIA, Marvell, up anywhere between 14 and 25 percent year to date. And then the analog chip names like ON and XPI, which I know someone on our desk owns, is negative. And then uh, Texas Instruments, you can see just barely positive, up 3 percent year to date. That's someone being Jim Labenthal. By the way, NXP initiated overweight at Cantor today. 260 price target, top pick name there. Our favorite analog name today is what they call it. And that I, was your final trade yesterday. I, as I, I had no knowledge of Cantor Fitzgerald. But, but look, this is what makes a market, right? You've got bears and bulls. And I, I understand what the bear case is on something like NXP that gets 50% of its business from automotive. The bear case is simple. EV inventories are piling up. People don't want EVs as much as everybody thought. EVs take more chips than regular internal combustion engine uh, vehicles. So somebody like me will come out on the bullish side and say, look, production of autos is picking up and it needs to pick up. Inventories across the industry are still at about 60% of pre-pandemic levels and the demand is there. But the bears will have a point here and say, yeah, the volume of the cars is going up, but the number of chips in each car on average is going down. I get it where I come out on this, and this is what makes a market, is that at the price for NXP Semiconductor right now, I think you're getting a bargain even when you take those bearish cases into into point into Joe, account Joe you had Texas instruments and you bailed on it uh, late last year and very happy that we did um, I think when you look at the semiconductors it's simple you're looking at one thing revenue growth show me the revenue growth and then I will assign accordingly and the revenue growth is there for Nvidia it's there for Broadcom it's there for KLA Corp and it's there for Lamb research and that's why those companies in the semiconductor space are outperforming relative to other companies, uh, which, which clearly don't have that revenue growth like Texas Instruments. Are we going to, Christina, get to a better place in terms of what Joe's favorite metric is? Uh, revenue? No. Well, for Texas in- Instrument, he has a point. That's why you've seen five straight quarters, and it seems like consensus is that uh, management will continue to guide a little bit negative. They're still going through this bottom, and I think that plays a big role as to why many investors like Joe are just hesitant buying into this name. However, one point, though, Texas Instrument is more diversified than on an NXPI, so that could be seen Very as true. a positive uh, when you're talking about weakness in auto um, and EV sales. That a lot of appreciation, too, in terms of where it was after last earnings until now. So maybe the bar even creeps up a little bit higher. But we'll see. And you'll tell us uh, in overtime. Christina, thank you. Christina Partsinevelis. All right, straight ahead. Speaking of earnings, we'll give you the setup on more key ones coming this week, including Freeport, CSX, and others. We'll give you the trades next.
show you the three majors there. We are in the red, but there's the Joe T. Uh, we said it's at a 52-week high. So all five of the earnings reports that we're going to talk about as we look ahead are, are held in the Joe T. Uh, Intuitive Surgical, that's today after the bell. Freeport's tomorrow, Lamb Research tomorrow, CSX and United Rentals are, are as well. Which one are you, let's say, which one are you most interested, if not excited, about coming into their report, and which one are you a little concerned about? The pressure is on Freeport Mac Moran because technically right now it is broken. Uh, conditions as it relates to, to copper are very challenging. So they really need a strong fourth quarter comeback, if you would. Um, Lamb Research is in a great place. Lamb Research near an all-time high. And that's really on the expectation surrounding AI and the boost that they're going to get from AI. Let's be careful with LAM research. Let's see if Chinese demand is weakening. Let's see if they can maintain the operating margin above 30%. Little concerned here in particular. I cited revenue growth before. Little concerned here. Revenue growth might decelerate. What about ISRG? ISRG, strong, strong, positive momentum. Um, I believe that's a core holding as it relates to healthcare. Um, so I don't want the viewers thinking about that from a trading instrument. I think that's a pure investment when you think about healthcare. Jimmy, you own Union Pacific. You don't own CSX, but you have interest in rails, obviously. We talked the other day about what's been happening in transports. Uh, we did talk the other day about the idea of demand picking up as goods consumption uh, increases. However, what I'm more concerned about, and this is for Union Pacific, is cost control. Now, they brought in a new CEO over the summer, Jim Venna. Uh, they've had some operational mishaps over the last two years, and what you bring in a new CEO to do is control expenses. That's what the CEO does. I want to see if the industry is getting it under control, expenses that is, and CSX will give me a good look at that. All right, coming up, a big pop and a big drop for two of today's earnings movers. First, though, Mike Santoli, he's going to join us on the other side right here at Post 9 with his midday word. Our senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now at the desk for his midday word. Do you think uh, 415, 10 years making us a little nervous today? I mean, even so, it's yeah. pretty calm. Um, it is relatively calm. I would say a one-month high in two-year yields as well. 440, uh, yeah, just look, 441. Yeah, is, is at least keeping us on guard. I mean, in general, I think you start with the premise of we're operating by bull market rules. All the market behavior analyses that say when the market does this, here's what you should expect in big picture terms are all relatively favorable financial conditions, supportive of risk, all that stuff. But I think you have to overlay that with we never really got oversold before this breakout. The market didn't really wind the spring very tight. And so here we are kind of in dispersion season during the earnings flood. We have a lot of offsetting company by company moves. And I think that's what you're seeing mostly now. So I don't think there's anything alarming going on, but you want to see how the Treasury auctions go and you want to see how the market, you know, handles it. Again, I don't think we're kind of tripping any important thresholds on yields. But um, given the fact that the market didn't get way oversold and we're just sort of figuring out uh, which stocks are going to work. I know some people are focused on this arrhythmic action in the NASDAQ, lots more lows than highs over the past week, even as you broke out on the headline index. But I don't think it's necessarily time to really, you know, uh, you know, wave the, the yellow flag, but you have to be aware of we it. We have, as Rick Santelli's pointing out, literally just now, we have 60 billion yeah. in two-year right. notes up for auction at one o'clock. So we'll know. In 10 minutes. In a little while. And he so. says well, they've never auctioned off more than, than 60 billion in two years. So it's going to be a good test. Yeah. It'll be a good test. I'll see you on closing bell. Okay. That's Mike Santoli. 
Thank you, Rick Santelli, for the email on that. Coming up, DR Horton down big on earnings. Joe's in on that one, too. We trade it next. trade two big winners today and two big losers. Uh, Dr. Horton, we're going to start that. It's down more than 9%. You, you own this one? I certainly do, Jimmy. I prepared the viewers for this yesterday. I said it was technically overbought. Um, I wanted to hold on to the position because fundamentals, I believe, are in place, in particular, if you get some relief on mortgage rates. But guess what? I think the home builders are going to continue to correct. They're still, in the case of DR Horton, nearly 20% above its 200-day moving average. So just set that expectation. I mean, Kramer made the point this morning, you know, the problem with selling the home builders, do you really want to sell the home builders when rates are coming down? Absolutely. I, yeah, that's what I just said. I think you're going to get mortgage relief at some point in 2024, and that's going to stimulate what is a frozen residential real estate market. 3M, Jimmy, is a big drag today. It's down 11.5%, or at least it was at the time of print. Let's take a look. It's down even worse. They wish it was only down 11.5%. You know, this stock caught a bid uh, in the second half of last year when they put some legal issues behind it. And it was great that the legal issues were put behind, but that just left unmasked the fact that it's not that much of an innovative company. I mean, yes, it's an industrial and it should do well with the economy, but there's no pizzazz here. There's no catalyst. There's nothing to get excited about beyond the fact that legal uh, liabilities have been reduced. And by the way, there are still legal liabilities. you know, used, I, this is a no touch for me. You used to own Raytheon. You don't anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, you don't own any of the industrial aerospace plays. That's up quite nicely today, I guess, on the back of the I earnings. I wish I owned it. I wish I owned it, right? Um, look, I two stocks that I've sold recently in the space, one Raytheon, one Boeing. Raytheon is nicely higher than when I sold it. Boeing is lower than where I sold it. Uh, in essence, that's a wash. But where I'm looking right now is I would like to be in an aerospace company where I'm not worried about margins. I'm not worried about some big manufacturing defect like Raytheon is properly managing right now and Boeing is having difficulties managing. I want a pure aerospace company that's not having problems. I've got a few on my list, probably make some purchases in the the next week or so. Horizon's been up nicely today, too, on sub-additions, topping estimates there. Logitech, our other loser on the day, was down double digits. CEO saying that profit margins are going to be hit by higher transport costs due to what we were talking about earlier, the Red Sea crisis. All right, we'll take a quick break. Final trades are next. All right, I hope you join me on the closing bell today at 3 o'clock Eastern. We're going to have an old-fashioned bull bear debate because we have Brian Belsky who's been bullish, as you know. Greg Branch, he's been bearish. Look forward to that. Alex Kantrowitz on Netflix ahead of the earnings and overtime. Jason Snipe, the shareholder. We'll kick all that around. Avery Sheffield is going to join us as well as we kick around the markets. 30 seconds left. Shannon, final trade is what? Energy. Uh, Joe mentioned earlier, hasn't, hasn't moved on geopolitical tensions, but it will. Okay. Jimmy. Qualcomm's had a nice bid to start the year. Maybe somebody will upgrade it tomorrow like they did NXP today. Joe T. All right, if we get through the two-year auction, keep your eye on Microsoft within the last 45 minutes. Good, buy, good buying action. It looks like it's breaking out. It's on the highs of today. That'll tell you where the rest of the day is going. Making a run at three trill in terms of market cap. We'll watch that closely, too. All right, I'll see you on Closing Bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.